My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, the point of which is to follow up with the Thomistic Institute speaker who will have given a lecture on campus or at a retreat or conference and uh, pursue some of the insights that were proposed in that setting. Uh, yeah, suss out the arguments and, and see what comes of it. So for this episode, I'm very delighted to be joined by Professor Ross McCullough. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Um, so folks will know you from the lecture, which came out recently on the Thomistic Institute podcast on, on atonement. But for those who don't, would you just say a word, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, I'm a, uh, so I'm an assistant professor of theology at George Fox University, which is outside Portland, Oregon. Um, and my background is in, uh, is in philosophical theology. My first book is, is called Freedom and Sin, and it's about uh, essentially how you explain sin in, in a world that's, that's caused by God um, in a kind of robust Thomistic way, where God is, is the immediate cause of all that exists in the world. So how do you make sense of, of sin and our ability to disobey God in some sense? Uh, in that world. Um, so that, that, that was my dissertation, um, and, uh, and now book. Um, and I'm, I'm, but I'm interested in broadly in sort of philosophical theological questions, um, across a, r a range of things, including, including soteriology and atonement, which I, which I spoke about at Oregon, what, a couple months, a month or two ago. Oh, okay. Um, are you by any chance from Oregon or did you find yourself there because the job was there? I'm from Seattle. The Seattle area. Oh, nice. So I'm I'm three and a half hours from my parents and from my in-laws. My wife's also from from Seattle. So. Awesome. Okay. My parents met and married in Portland, Oregon, um, but they haven't lived there for over forty years. So, but some of my family still lives in in the org. I mean, like in the Portland area. They they lived in Tigard and Beaverton. So that's kind of out. We're we're just we're there, but like a little farther from the city. So we're the we're the first town you come to after you leave the suburbs. It's called nice. Newburgh. It's in wine okay, country. Cool. It's beautiful. Yeah, people should come. Sweet. I was there recently, basically, to visit family. Um, but it was the first time that I went to Multnomah Falls, which oh, is yeah. very beautiful. Oh, yeah. In the gorge. Yeah. And then we, like, hiked up to whatever the name of the mountain is behind. I think it was, like, Larch Mountain. Um, but we were pressed for time, and I we were running downhill to get back to whatever car to get to whatever engagement. And it was the closest I've ever come to downhill running face planting, which... <laughs> You know, close grape, I suspect it would have been unpleasant, but um, I, I made it out alive. So cheers. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be the first. I, okay, I, I, so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you go, go. I, I was going to say, I, I hiked up around that area with my kids and there's some like sheer cliffs around there. And I had like a four-year-old at the time and I sort of I started second guessing myself when, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this could be really bad, but it's beautiful yeah. country. It is indeed. Um, yeah, I... I'm going to stop myself from talking about how Oregon is beautiful and get to the heart of the matter, which is soteriology or the study of atonement theory. So in the lecture that you gave, you were talking about, I don't know how we want to characterize them, but maybe different soteriological paradigms. So different ways or like heuristics for capturing how it is that our Lord communicates the divine life in light of sin. And you talked about some traditional figures um, and kind of worked your way through the different paradigms or models. And then the students had lots of questions about penal substitution, which is awesome. Um, but, I, but I thought that we could focus about the first one that you proposed, uh, this idea of Christus Victor theory. Um, so for those who may not yet have listened to the lecture itself, could you just give a quick thumbnail sketch of Christus Victor, Christus Victor theory? Yeah, Christus Victor, um, which just means like the victorious Christ, um, Christ the victor. 
it's a it's a very early theory in the church. It's it receives a lot of attention in the patristic period, um, and it's it's the idea that Christ uh, wins salvation for us by conquering the devil, by being victorious over the devil. Uh, and so the um, you know there's a lot of scriptural support for this, of course, and no one really denies it. I mean, everybody accepts that this is part of what Christ does for us. Uh, but the Christus Victor theory really makes that central. Like that's that's really the heart of what's going on. And so, you know, one way of thinking about different theories of the atonement is to ask what problem the theory, what problem Christ is meant to solve on the theory. Um, And so if you make Christus Victor central, the the real problem that we face as human beings is subservience to the devil, right? We're, We're subject to the powers and principalities of this world. Christ comes, is victorious over those and frees us from them. Um, and so that's the, that's the kind of the basic, uh, the basic paradigm. Um, and then, and, you know, another way to, to ask the que- to ask this question or to sort out these different atonement models of the atonement is to ask, what is the, um, what is, what is it in Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, second coming that does the most work? Like where is Christ really doing the saving work for us? Um, and so with Christus Victor theory, you know, Christ conquers the devil, especially, on in the in the kind of cross and then descent into hell and then the resurrection. So in the resurrection, in the descent into hell on Holy Saturday, he goes down to hell, the domain of the devil. He takes Adam and Eve and all the other saints um, from before his coming and takes them out. It's a sort of smash and grab model. So if you ever see these icons, uh, especially the Eastern Church, uh, going back to the fathers, of course, puts a lot of emphasis on this. You see, they've got these icons of the descent into hell and Christ is, is breaking the doors of the doors of the of death of, of hell and bringing out Adam and Eve and then all and then Abraham and Moses and everybody else up from the grave um, to the resurrection. So that's really what's what's uh, what's doing the work um, there. Yeah, you, you made mention of the Divine Comedy a couple of times in the lecture, and I'm thinking of as you descend through the circles of hell or the bulges or, you know, the sub circles or whatever stage you're at. Um, you, you constantly see like evidence of this harrowing of hell, like broken bridges and whatever, shattered infrastructure, uh, which is a kind of fascinating testimony to the fact that like hell has a kind of half-life. Um, it's like approaching nothing asymptotically. I mean, I mean, it continues to exist, auditoritatum, but the sense that like hell's been roughed up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I found that especially interesting while reading the Divine Comedy, because it's not something that I had thought of previously. Yeah, there's been like uh, an earthquake or something. Like he's go, there's like these ruins in hell, and, and Dante's like, "What's going on here?" It's like, "Oh yeah, it was all shaken up," you know, about thirteen hundred years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah, which is I never thought about it, but like the kind of parallel in the Purgatorio when souls are released from a lower circle to a higher circle, there's also a kind of comparable shaking up or earthquake. Um, he's talking to one of the poets. I want maybe it's like Statius. I've forgotten, but when he's talking to him, it's like. Yeah, there's a little bit of a little bit of a movement. He's like, "What just happened?" He's like, "Hey, somebody just atoned." It's like, "Let's go." Yeah. So it applies both to the act and to its application in the subsequent dispensation. So Dante, man, just being a theological boss. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> so so then, all right. Thinking about this theory, I am writing my dissertation on pertinent questions and articles of the Summa Theologiae, and I'm thinking about question forty-eight, article four, where Saint Thomas talks about redemption. And and he speaks about it specifically as a kind of deliverance from servitude. And then he follows up in the next question, like servitude from sin and vice, servitude from 
death, and then servitude from the devil, which kind of comes in last for comment. So St. Thomas seems to have in mind, what we're talking about here is a kind of bondage to sin. So insofar as we sin, we do damage to ourselves in a kind of primary sense, insofar as God is immutable and Satan is fixed. Um, but, but it seems like in some of the theories that you were describing, Eastern theories, there's kind of more of a rich imaginative or metaphorical aspect to these theories. Could you draw out some of those or highlight some of your favorites? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at. Do you mean, um, you mean, I some remember of you the... talking about fish hooks and yeah. things like that, just kind of like different ways of explaining how it is that Christ dupes the devil. Yeah. Just, it just more, more in the way of that. Yeah. Um, so there's a, so there's a closely related uh, theory that Christ is, doesn't just defeat the devil, but is actually a ransom to the devil. Um, and so these, these two theories kind of cross over and uh, there's a lot of different images used, um, that are sort of in the space between these two. Um, but so, and the idea there is that, that the devil, when Christ takes us from the devil, he doesn't just do it by force, um, just like pure smash and grab, but in some sense, the devil has a right to us in some way. And so Christ has to pay the devil something. And so this is, this is kind of the idea of redemption. Um, and Aquinas talks about this too. Uh, that that redemption involves like paying a price to to the person to whom we're enslaved to redeem us to buy us out of slavery and so the devil in some sense gets Christ in exchange for us that's kind of the idea um, and so you get all sorts of crazy stuff but and so one of them is like you said in Gregory of Nyssa he has this idea and I don't think it originates with Gregory I think it might go further back but that uh, that the that the cross is this kind of uh, is this kind of fish hook. It's, it's a, Christ is the bait for the devil. The devil sees Christ and wants him, wants to, to take him, to seize him. And then once he seized him to kill him, uh, because he's this, you know, he's this prize, it's appetizing to the devil. Once he does that, only then does he realize that, oh, I've actually captured the God of life that I can't hold. And so that's, mm. he sort of takes in Christ, but then he's caught on the hook as it were. And he's gotten, he's, he's been, he's been captured. Um, so it, it kind of picks up on some of these patristic motifs too, where, you know, everything you do to Christ is actually Christ doing it to you. You know, you don't, you don't eat the Eucharist, the Eucharist eats you. You don't read the scriptures, the scriptures read you. So also like the devil doesn't like capture Christ, Christ captures the devil. It's this kind of like, um, this, this sort of inversion that the, the, the fathers are constantly playing with. Um, so that's that's one of the things, um, but you have you have all sorts of, of images like this, especially playing with this idea of of a ransom that, in some sense, you know that uh, that the devil doesn't totally understand what he's doing, and so when he gets paid back, he gets paid back in a way that uh, that he he accepts and he sort of is satisfied with, but ultimately undermines his whole project, uh, all his goals. Uh, precisely because it's not just a man and it's not just an innocent man. It's the God man. It's, it's God. And so it's, he's unholdable. Um, the, uh, in the, in the Western tradition, this is uh, the ransom stuff uh, ends up getting slightly sidelined by Anselm. So Anselm is, is not as much of a fan of the ransom stuff because he, Anselm says, uh, you know, with, with some reason that the devil doesn't have a right to us. <laughs> it's not, it's not good that, the, that we're in subservience to the devil. We, we belong to God always. And so it's not that like the devil maybe stole us, but you don't have to give a ransom to a thief because the thief doesn't own the thing it stole. He stole, you just take it back. That's what justice demands. 
And that's kind of Anselm's view of ransom. So he, so Anselm moves away from ransom to a satis, more satisfaction model where, where it's being paid is not to the devil, but to God. But with Aquinas and so, so some of the later medievals, including Aquinas, you get you get a little bit more of an accommodation that like, you know, there's some sense in which we freely chose to go to the devil. He didn't just take us. Um, and so there is a kind of way in which the devil like has a certain, if not like a strict right, some kind of, it's like appropriate that God would give some kind of redemption, some kind of substitute payment to him. And so you can accommodate some of that patristic and, and biblical witness there too. Okay. Um, so in balanced theological fashion, you make kind of principled reference to the sacred scriptures, to the church's tradition with an emphasis on the fathers of the church. Kudos. Uh, in my theological ghetto, <laughs> never mind. I shouldn't say that all Thomists do this, but there's there's usually a, a different theological instinct, and it involves uh, a, a pithy, you know, whatever. Uh, so we'll we're we're resource monotomists. It's a resource monotomist, <laughs> right? No, it's 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 good for me to speak with somebody who's more sensible and less cranky. So, um, yes. So okay. So then, is there a hierarchy to be established among soteriological paradigms? You you kind of. Described at the beginning of your lecture, you're just going to propose these without necessarily trying to evaluate amongst them. You made, you know, some light touches as to where this fits and how it might fit better. Um, but do you see like, all right, the past 2000 years, we've been thinking about these questions. Are there certain soteriological paradigms based on the scriptural and patristic and medieval uh, formulation that have kind of risen to the top or help us to make sense of the others in a way that's, you know, like helpful or fruitful or, or good? Yeah, I mean, so the I should say, like the the broad schematic that that I'm trying to impose on them is that basically you have you have six models organized in two sets of three, and the two sets are come from from Mount Aquinas. The, the first set of three are Christ as the efficient cause of our salvation, and the second set of three are Christ as the meritorious cause of our salvation. And the efficient cause is Christ, like actually, well, I should say, the meritorious cause is Christ making us worthy to receive salvation. So he makes it appropriate in some sense that we would be saved. And the second set of three is Christ actually saving us, actually doing the saving work. And so um, you can think about this with respect to the devil. The ransom from the devil makes us worthy to be taken from the devil. It's, it's sort of the justice that, we, that God owes to the devil is in some way satisfied by that. But then Christ, Christus Victor is Christ actually taking us from the devil. So Christ makes us worthy and then Christ does it, both of those things. And so in terms of, in terms of those two broad categories, both I think are equally important that you need both. And broadly speaking, the making us worthy side, Christ as meritorious cause finds its greatest emphasis on the cross. So it's Christ's death that in some sense does that work through satisfaction or penal substitution or something like that. And then the second set, Christ actually bringing us salvation there, the emphasis is on the resurrection because nobody wants to like be saved to death, right? You're saved to new life. So the resurrection is really what gets the emphasis there. And in terms of, so that's in terms of the, the events of Christ's life. And obviously, you know, for the whole tradition from the Bible forward, it's the, the heart of the incarnation is the Paschal mystery, right? Suffering, death, resurrection. So that's at the level of Christ's life. Now, in terms of models, like to, to address your question more directly, you have these two sets of three. But in on my reading, and you can dispute this, on my reading, the most important of the meritorious causes in the tradition is this is satisfaction. And that's what you see at the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent and at Aquinas and in Anselm, who sort of generates this tradition. You get the idea that Christ is satisfying for our sin on the cross. Um, and that's that's kind of the controlling uh, the controlling metaphor. 
uh, or image or, or sort of trope. And then the, that's it for Christ's meritorious cause. And that's always been much more influential in the Catholic tradition than like a penal substitution view. Um, although penal substitution has not been condemned. And then in the, uh, on the other side, on the side of Christ actually affecting our salvation, the most important model is, in my view, and I think this is pretty easy to maintain, is, is some kind of divinization. That why does God become man? God becomes man, that man might become God, right? To use Athanasius's famous phrase. So like I said, this is clearly from the patristic period forward. Um, it's in Aquinas. Aquinas uh, actually um, gets a, has a more robust view of this over time. He, he goes to Rome at some point and reads more of the Eastern fathers, especially John of Damascus. And he, and he incorporates more and more of their Christology, but also their soteriology in his theology. And, uh, and so you see this side, this sort of divinization stuff come out more and more as Aquinas uh, matures as a theologian. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it really is the heart of, of, uh, of what Christ does for us as an efficient cause and what the resurrection is all about. Um, you know, taking us from the devil is great, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, another, another model for how Christ communicates grace to us is like teaching Christ's moral example. He shows us the way he, you know, he, he communicates to our mind, the knowledge of what it looks like. That's, that's obviously important, but really the heart of it is, is divinization that Christ actually changes us and of course, this happens above all through the sacraments, right? So it's Christ's divinizing activity through the humanity of Christ applied to us through baptism, the Eucharist, and the other sacraments. Um, so that's that's kind of how it how it like fits into the Christian life too. So you can see part of part of the reason it's so preeminent as a model is because it's also tied in so closely to the life of the Christian and the sacramental life of the church. Boom. All right. Um, that's sweet. That's helpful for me. Um, I mentioned before we push record that I'm writing my dissertation on issues like very close to this, especially like hierarchy of soteriological paradigms. I'm not engaging, well, insofar as St. Thomas did, I'm, I'm engaging the Christian tradition more broadly, but I'm basically just engaging St. Thomas, trying to get at what it is that he seems to think. Um, <laughs> which it's pretty satisfaction right? I mean, at least in the Summa, it's a pretty heavily satisfaction-based model on my reading. Yeah, no, I, uh, that is a reading. I'm trying to defend a reading where merit is more... Kind of so, like I'm defending a reading of Tertia Parr's Question 48, Articles 1 through 6, where he's doing like in Articles 1 through 5, the human contribution, as it were, um, or like the order of moral causality, what you're describing as like what makes us worthy of, or meritorious causality, broadly conceived. Um, and so I'm, I, I have it basically that he's going through these articles as a progressive specification, not necessarily like a strict specification at each stage, but that like the, the general tendency of articles one through five is a progressive specification. So like merit covers all of Christ's pre-mortem mysteries. Um, and then satisfaction concerns those uh, which pertain to some punishment suffered, you know, like born up for justice and then talk, 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 you know, go through sacrifice and redemption. And then that he underwrites it in article six with this efficiency piece. So it's like, well, what is it that ultimately gives punch? He's been making reference in articles one through five to like infinite dignity and worth, you know, like to the Godhead kind of as the ultimate referent to which the moral causality, the order of moral causality appeals. But then in the, you know, article six, it's just like blammo, the physical order of causality. Yeah. We're going to like cause stuff, bae. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Um, yeah, but, but, but I think that like to kind of, so, so to blah, 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 here we go, Gregory. You can speak clearly. You just got to you just got to will yourself, big fella. Um, so this idea that that Christ does in our humanity for us what remains to be done, uh, 
there's something about that, you know, like you said, it's not strictly necessary, uh, but it is supremely fitting. So maybe we could, maybe we could just drill down on that. Um, you know, we've introduced these different paradigms or models, these different ways of explaining the redemption broadly conceived. <clears throat> um, and I think, you know, like each brings something to the table or gives testimony to God's love for us or God's efficacious desire to have us reunited with him. Um, yeah, so maybe like, maybe we could just talk about satisfaction insofar as that is kind of architectonic. <clears throat> like, what is it, and you, you were talking a little bit about Anselm's theory, what is it about this insistence upon justice which reveals to us something deeper, something wider, something greater about the love of God? What is it about satisfaction? The satisfaction yeah. model? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, like you say, it's satisfaction is, is this kind of merit stuff, but especially when it's applied and considered in the light of sin. And so a lot of what satisfaction is bringing out about God is his, is his mercy um, in response to sin, but a mercy that doesn't occlude his justice. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of key feature. Um, from Anselm on, you know, and that's Anselm's imagined interlocutor is something like a, is something like a monotheist who doesn't, who's not a Christian, like a Jew or a Muslim or something. Um, and so part of what's in his mind is why, you know, why can't God, why can't God just be merciful? Like just straight mercy, just like forgives us. No, no, nothing, no cost paid for that. Um, and the idea is his idea is his intuition, which I think is a strong one is that, you know, there's something in a certain one way of saying it is it doesn't take sin quite seriously enough. Um, another way of saying it is it doesn't quite express God's justice, the, the action of doing that, of just forgiving without any price paid for it. Wouldn't ex wouldn't like bring out, wouldn't manifest the justice of God um, to quite the same degree. Again, you know, like you say, it's, it's a fittingness argument. Um, Anselm's a little wobbly on this, but from Peter Lombard forward through Aquinas, they all say like, look, God could, God could have just like forgiven us. That's fine. Augustine says it too. Um, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as fitting and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as fitting of the divine nature, which is to say like, it wouldn't manifest God's mercy, but also his justice in the same act. And the idea is, um, you know, that, that it shows God's justice because in some sense it pays a, it pays a more than sufficient price for, for the cost of sin. Um, because of the, because the dignity of the life of Christ of course, Christ just dies as a human being, but it's God who dies as a human being. And that gives a kind of infinite dignity to the to the price paid. Um, and so that takes takes more than seriously um, the sort of gravity of sin and also what God's justice demands in the face of that. But then also it's supremely merciful. So it's sort of supremely just in that sense. It's also supremely merciful because we don't pay it ourselves. God comes down in the incarnation to pay it himself. Um, and so that's the aspect of mercy. And so the idea is that actually what you get here is it's even more merciful. It's not just more just, it's also more merciful in some sense, because God even goes, goes further. Uh, he goes to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. Right. And so the, the, the mercy too is ramped up. Whereas it like, sort of like, just like the wiping, wiping clean of the slates would, would manifest, um, the justice and the mercy to a lower degree. So that, that's kind of the idea. Um, and that's the kind of beauty of the, of the thing. Um, okay. To borrow a line from Spinal Tap without any disrespect to the mysteries concerned, I think you have here an example of kind of like turning things up to 11. Turn it up. Um, yeah. So because like it, it's, you know, based on your description, <clears throat> there's a sense in which, you know, in the passion, death and resurrection, the mystery, if we can speak of the mystery of God with a singular, 
the mystery is one refracted into various mysteries so as to make it more as it were perceptible or you know kind of receivable for human beings but it's also it's it's like kind of intensified so rather than backing off from the mystery it's like god god leans into the mystery to use 21st century you know hortatory speech in the sense that you know so justice and mercy seem in some way, shape, or form to be opposed within the limited compass of our human minds, but we believe, we profess that they are united in God, who is justice and mercy itself. And that's something that we'll behold in the beatific vision, right? So one, obviously the primary delight of the beatific vision is God, but certain secondary lights arrive as well. Like we can see the heck man, you know, predestination and free will. How does that work? Or justice and mercy speak. Um, but But it seems like in the mysteries of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, in his deeds and sufferings, you have these particular icons, as it were, of the divine mystery. And so it's like, rather than backing off from, by leaning into, Christ reveals something, you know, deeper, wider, greater, which I hadn't thought about until you put it in those terms, which is cool. But then like, you think about all the arguments of fittingness that are given. It's like, look at the cross, you know, like, what do you see? You see how much God loves us. You see how bad sin is. You see how worthwhile our nature is of redeeming. You see the term for which, you know, in divinization, insofar as our Lord's sacred humanity is there, while he kind of withholds the glory, it's just brimming over until such time as he cuts it loose. Um, but that's contingent upon this this leaning in dimension. So it's like, it's like some of these sociological paradigms, as it were, God places certain constraints upon the divine operation as a way by which to what, I don't know, accommodate it to us or like, yeah, make it known to us and loved by us in a more intense way. I don't yeah, know, your thoughts on that? I'm yeah, it's sort of progressive, you know, it's like milk and then bread kind of thing, you know? I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole MO of the, of the scriptures, right? Through the, through the Old Testament, but into the New Testament. Um, and then even after with the spirit leading us into all truth, as we, through the church, you can sort of, you, you know, you unpack what's implicit in the, in the revelation of Christ. Um, but yeah, I think that's right. And I, and part of the important point here and like, is that, um, so if you take something like justice and mercy, it's actually a less, you know, the farther we are from understanding God, the more we think of them as, as, uh, inversely related. And so part of what Christ is, is doing and the, the way we have to like understand Christ is not, is not mystery. He's not bringing us a mystery in the sense of, saying um in the sense of sort of like throwing up our hands and being like oh who can say who can know it's just like pure darkness it's the it's the dazzling darkness it's the darkness that is sort of it's the it's it's divine it's a kind of fullness of darkness and so it's it's ramping up both sides of the justice and mercy so we see them you know we see both it's like oh this actually is more merciful and also more just and that gives us a glimpse of of what the beatific vision will be like where it's we're not somehow like, oh, we've got the precise relationship where like this part of the pie is justice and this part of the pie is mercy. It's like, no, it's the whole thing. The whole thing is just mercy a merciful justice. Right. Um, and so that's that's as a kind of like paradigm for how we read both both Christ, but, uh, you know, sort of all this stuff like coming closer to God. I think that's that's exactly exactly how we have to do it, whether it's predestination, which is my book or other stuff. Yeah. Um, OK, so then. Well, thinking about this in terms of your book, maybe this will provide a helpful bridge to the mystery of iniquity. Um, is there like, ha- can you identify certain elements in the atonement or certain elements of Christ's redemption, which are particularly well suited to address us in the midst of our existential state, which is one of kind of bewilderment or bemusement? 
um, you know, trying to describe how God and his predestinating grace permits us to turn from him freely whilst, you know, um, accounting for it in a providence within which bounds all fall. Um, like that's just, yeah, I mean, you think about that for too long and you just start sweating or crying or both. Um, but like, how is it, how is it that, you know, you can take it from whichever vantage you see fit, but how is it that the cross is specifically addressed to, to us in that state, in the mystery of iniquity with our minds dulled and our hearts hardened and without any real, you know, like capacity to raise our eyes from whence shall come our help, except he, I don't know, he'd do it for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a couple different ways here. One is that uh, what's sometimes called a response theory of the atonement, um, which is really a kind of branch of the of the moral exemplar sort of teaching side of the atonement, kind of subjective theory of the atonement. And the idea is the, the term response theory comes from a medievalist named Carolyn Walker Bynum, and the idea is that Christ on the cross, through his suffering especially, elicits a response in us as, as beholding it, right? So this is the kind of behold the cross um, from whom comes or on whom hangs the salvation of the world. And so you see the suffering, you see the death of this innocent man, this, this often the kind of like lamb of God stuff plays here. So you see sort of like this young, innocent, pure victim, and there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of suffering. You see like the nails go through the hands and it elicits this kind of emotional response, um, mm. even for people whose hearts are hardened in iniquity. Because we're not, you know, we can still, we're, we're dulled, but we're not totally insensitive to these things. And so Christ has to really, like, really go in there and play up the, the kind of unjust suffering side of things um, in order to elicit, you know, our, our stony hearts to get them to move again. Um, and so, so that's, that's clearly part of it. There's also just the, you know, there's also this kind of, um, what would I say, more like participatory side. Like Christ puts himself with us. There's this kind of solidarity between him and us in sin. Obviously Christ doesn't sin, but he comes into a, into a fallen humanity in the sense that he's, he has a, a flesh that can die where they can get sick and die and suffer and all the things that we, after the fall are enmeshed in, including some kind of abandonment by God, right? Famously on the cross. Um, and so I think, I think especially the abandonment stuff, you were talking about existential situations, and one of the things about the cross is it, in some sense, it has to express the existential, existential situation of humanity after the fall, sort of over the course of all of human history, which is, which is in a, in a certain way difficult, right? It's not an obvious thing because, because the existential situation changes uh, over time. And so I bring up the cry of, a, of dereliction on the cross because in, in some way that's like resonated, has resonated more in the last a hundred or 200 years in the modern period um, where people feel you know, people feel the impingement of death or illness or things like that a little less because of technology. But you have these other kinds of existential, the kind of contemporary existential situation is more in these other things. But lo and behold, Christ is also there with us in ways that allow us to see anew um, something about the cross that we that we always saw in the church, but we didn't um, necessarily it didn't resonate with us as much because in some sense it was it was planted there, you know, with an eye towards the 20th century or the 21st century. Like there's stuff in the cross that's not fully unpacked until we kind of live through through sin as it manifests now. Um, and so the cry of dereliction as as this kind of cry of ab abandonment, but ironically also it's God placing Himself in solidarity with those who feel abandoned by God. I mean, that's the, that's the kind mm -hmm. of trick of it. Um, so the more abandoned you feel in some sense, the more you can identify with Christ. Um, 
and so so it's kind of it's kind of playing this game, but it's not just a kind of academic theological game. It's a deeply existential and pastoral game that's going on, if you want to call it that. Um, or another way of saying it is, it's you know, it's it's this, it's another kind of like trick of the devil, where the devil thinks, oh, I can get him, you know, I'll get him this way. They can feel like abandoned by God or whatever. But Christ comes into the abandonment and can even use the abandonment for good. Um, so the things that we think are most alienating from us and most um, leading us away from God, Christ can come into those and use them. It's not a guarantee. Like you have to be able to use them. It takes spiritual discipline and all that. But the, the, the offer is there. The possibility is there. Um, and then the grace is there to help us to, to use those for good. What, what, what others have meant as for evil. Okay, so thinking then, this kind of opens the question of the temporal dispensation of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection and, you know, its contact with our existential state. Same time, I was just editing a part of my, my dissertation about that. Um, the question of contact, virtual contact, is just a wild rodeo of uh, <laughs> theological discourse. But, you know, St. Thomas is content in, in pithy form to say, you know, he applies it. Uh, spiritually by faith and corporeally by sacraments, uh, which is a go-to line of his to which he returns with some frequency. Um, so could you talk a little bit about like, okay, how is how is the cross, and you don't have to get into, you know, polemics or apologetics or particularly contentious positions on this, but in, in what way can we say that the cross or the passion, death, and resurrection, the paschal mystery is present, you know, or made present by faith and sacrament here, now, even though we're at a distance of 2,000 years? Yeah. Um, this is, you know, I'm, I, I've gone back and forth on like some of the details of this, but broadly speaking, um, the, the idea with, with faith is in some ways the most like, uh, commonsensical, uh, and, uh, and it's immediately applicable. I mean, I'm, I teach at a, a Quaker school actually, but it's a lot of evangelical Protestants and they all get the faith stuff right away. It kind of like makes sense, you know, um, before you get yeah. into the weird sacrament stuff, but the faith stuff <laughs> is just by the, you know, by the gift of faith and the the Holy spirit active in your heart and giving you these theological virtues, you're able to uh, in your spirit at a, at a spiritual level, uh, make really present the Paschal mystery in your life. Um, and you're, you, you can live the death of the old man and the life of the new man that you can live out your baptism in that sense. Um, which is like I say, living out the, living out the Paschal mystery. Um, and that happens at a spiritual level through, you know, crucifying your vices and, um, growing in virtue, especially in, in the infused virtue, the supernatural virtues above all. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, and that's, that's great. Uh, now, the other side is the sacrament side. And of course, the, the, the sacrament side, the corporeal side, isn't sharply divided from the spiritual side. I mean, these things go together. We're, we're body, soul composites. And so every, you know, the sort of one thing affects the other. And they're always in this kind of relation. Though they're, they're distinct, but they're in the kind of dialectical relation where one side helps the other. And so, but the corporeal side is like, how, what does it mean that Christ's, pa the Paschal mysteries in some sense applied to us physically? when we do that, um, you know, there's the, the paradigmatic example, of course, is the Eucharist, uh, which is, which makes it both, which it, it makes it a certain sense is it's kind of misleading. It's, it's hard to apply to the other sacraments because the Eucharist, you really are present at the Paschal, at the sacrifice again, in some sense. And you really do take into yourself the resurrected Christ. And so the like strength of that participation, which is obviously like a, a complete mystery, exactly how that works. But the strength of that also makes it um, 
you know, both, both makes it the kind of like best example. And in some ways the worst example, cause like, well, what, in what sense does the sacrament of like marriage or confirmation or something do this, do the same thing. But the idea is, you know, the idea is basically like you are, you, the way, the way Aquinas talks about it, St. Thomas is, is that the, it's not, it's not just the Holy spirit operating through the physical bread and wine or through the water of baptism, say it's not just that it's actually Christ and Christ's humanity that's operating in the physical things. And that's part of the reason they have to be physical is because what's being applied to you in baptism, say, is the actual humanity of Christ. The, the, the analogy Aquinas uses is that it's like a human, it's like, it's like, um, making, making a couch with a, with an ax or with a carp with carpenter's tools. The, you are the couch that's being made or remade. The tool is the sacrament, but the hand that moves the tool is the humanity of Christ. And then the person who's moving the hand that's moving the tool is God. So God, it's obviously God is the primary agent working through all this, but it's not just like the Holy Spirit on the water or something. It's the Holy Spirit applying the humanity of Christ, like working through the humanity of Christ, working through the water, touching you. And so that's, and that's the sense in which it's, it becomes even more mysterious. Like it's not, you know, the humanity of Christ is in some sense there in the water, changing you. Um, again, like this gets like both extremely clear and clarified in the Eucharist, because that just is the body of Christ. But also like it's a it's a little like uh, more mind bending to think about how that works in confirmation or marriage or something. I don't know. Does that help? Or do you have other clarification? You know, no, that helps. No, no. Yeah, no, I think it's it's helpful for people to see in the sense that um, I, I, I like to repeat that, uh, like the Christian faith or the Catholic faith is, is mostly a matter of showing up um, in the sense that, you know, St. Thomas will affirm that a little old lady by virtue of faith knows more than the wisest of ancient philosophers who uh came before our Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the fact that she has this living contact um, so that faith opens her mind to, yeah, possibilities, horizons, which fall outside the compass of her, of her nature, you know? So it's just, you have access to a whole world, <laughs> you know, beyond, uh, which world is poised to bestow upon you every imaginable rich, you know, like whatever, wonderful gift, um, which is to say the divine life itself. But like, you know, like I think a lot of us kind of get bound up insofar as we see books with titles like, how do I get more out of mass? And we just think about it. We think about it in hyper intellectual terms or in hyper deliberate terms. Like I've got like a homework assignment and that homework assignment is holiness. Whereas like this idea that it's applied to us by faith and sacraments, it's just, you know, you as a composite human being, you know, you have a mind with which you know and a heart with which to love in this embodied composite form. And you just kind of enter into the Christian mystery as it's mediated, as it's intended to be mediated, you know, by the sacramental life, by the church's liturgy, by the family, by the ecclesial, you know, it's just like, yeah, I, I don't want to say it's not, it's not complicated. It is difficult. Obviously it's exceedingly difficult <laughs> yeah. and the prospect of ultimate tragedy abides, but it's like the Lord has made it such that all of this just, just bears grace, which is to say, I mean, it bears him. He gives himself, um, <clears throat> Yeah, Which is and the, astonishing. And the condition, you know, the condition for the reception of grace, you obviously can't just, you can't benefit from the sacraments or something if you're set against them. But the condition that the church teaches is just that you don't set obstacles to it. So it really is, there is that sense in which there's the kind of showing up. And I can tell you as like a parent of young children and you're at mass and my wife does the music. And so she's out there. So I'm, you know, corralling 
kids in the pews and stuff. And sometimes you just are, you're just not putting obstacles. That's what you're doing, <laughs> you know? And that's, and that's like, you know, that's very like freeing. It's very freeing in a way, like in the kind of ways you're indicating. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was thinking, what was I thinking about that? I was thinking about that yesterday because whatever, I had X, Y, and Z things to do. And then I was showing up at, it's like we have 30 minutes of meditation in the morning, 30 minutes of meditation in the evening. And for the evening meditation, as I was walking to the chapel, I was like, Lord, I think I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of examined my heart of hearts and, you know, discovered the reasons for which I did not have sufficient sleep the night before, found them to be non-culpable, non-foreseeable, you know, non-prudentially binding. And I said, this may as well happen. <laughs> That's, you know, yeah. Don't be scrupulous. Don't be scrupulous. The... Uh... The other thing I was going to say about that is, oh yeah, that, you know, there's also this fact that it can, if you, if you emphasize just the spiritual side too much, sometimes you can forget why it's important that Christ still is incarnate. It's not like the incarnation ends at the ascension or something or mm -hmm. after the second coming or something, the, the incarnation endures forever. <clears throat> His kingdom is without end. And so, uh, and you know, when you, when you just think about uh, the incarnation as necessary for satisfaction or something, it's like, okay, great. He like got a, got a human nature so that he could die. And then once he's done the death and he's paid the price, that's like all he really needs. Right. Um, but no, the point is that, that because you have the resurrection and the enduring resurrection, like you still have a relationship with the humanity of Christ. And that's what the sacraments give you is a relationship with the humanity of Christ. It's not just applying like the merits of the death or whatever to you. It's this, you know, it's this intimate and with the Eucharist, especially even this kind of like erotic union, right? Like you're looking forward to the wedding feast of the lamb where you're going to have some kind of like physical communion. You're physical. He's physical. He always will be. And you always will be um, in as much as you are you. So after the resurrection. Um, and so that's that's kind of like what's where it's going towards. Boom. There it is. Um Great. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation. It's like refreshing for me too, kind of in the sense that I've just been editing, you know, like punctuation and footnotes for the past four days. So it doesn't feel much like sacred doctrine. So good to talk about things that matter. Um, if folks want to follow up with you, uh, you mentioned a book. Uh, are there other places in which they can find your work or be in contact should they, should they like to be? Yeah, they can. Uh, email is probably best. I'm not a social media user. Um, so just shoot me an email. Um, I don't know if you have a place to put it up. It's just R McCullough, my first initial and last name at georgefox.edu. Um, so that's, uh, that's super easy. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. And thanks, uh, hopefully we'll cross paths back in the United States, maybe at some conference pertaining to themes, atonement wise or, or otherwise. Or so otherwise. All right. thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks again. All right. God bless. All right. Turning to you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Thomistic Institute podcast. Look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity. In the meantime, if you haven't yet subscribed, please do and push the bell if you're on YouTube. So that way you get sweet emails when other things come out or on your podcast app. And uh, yeah, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. <laughs>